Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hello and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. In a little while, we'll be attempting to unravel the sorrowful mysteries of the Shannon Aaron election. But first, we may still be in post-election limbo, a state which seems set to continue for some considerable time. But that does not mean that there are not some interesting things going on in the studio. To discuss those are Fia Kelly and Harry McGee. Good morning, gentlemen. Good morning. Good morning. Harry, you've had all the good gigs over the last while. You were with the Royals yesterday. Absolutely. I was able to breathlessly report that uh, Kate Middleton uh, was uh, decked out in a Catherine Walker uh, overcoat and an Alessandra Rich vivid green dressed and her hair tied over her shoulder, tied up with a black velvet band. <laughs> so they're the kind and of you details. You finally found your metier. Yes, they're the details apparently that are important when one is uh, reporting on Kate Middleton. It was kind of a very strange gig. I stood around in the cold with others outside Ors Nukteron and outside government buildings. Uh, just it was visual. It was almost like a silent movie because nothing is said during any of these occasions. It's all uh, decorum and protocol. But it, it does have a, a certain symbolic resonance. And I mean, obviously, uh, the Queen came here in 2011. Uh, the Prince William and Kate Middleton coming is certainly a sign that uh, the British are, are very keen to uh, to reinforce the very close relationship that has been forged between uh, the United Kingdom and Ireland post uh, uh, the ceasefire and post the Good Friday Agreement. And um, the visit yesterday was was another part of of that process to to say that even after Brexit has happened, that the relationship between both countries is cordial, it's warm and it's close. However, if you get at a time which I think a lot of politics is characterised by vacant symbolism, this was another vacant symbol, really. More or less, but I think, you know, it does, as Harry said, speak to an effort on behalf of the British authorities to maintain some degree of cordiality after what has been a testing two or three years and I think did the Prince of Wales uh, reflect that in a recent speech in the last year or two and also the president did. So it's perhaps a natural progression from that point where you would see the future king come. And as you say, yes, it is largely kind of, you know, vacuous going to the Guinness storehouse raising a point, but it does mean something. Moving on, Harry, I'm not sure if the Labour leadership contest is one of the interesting things that are happening at the moment, but it's happening anyway. You have been at the hustings. Um, I don't know, should we ask you for a fashion report on that as well? Well, um, red Alan... Tie. <laughs> red tie. <laughs> both, both of them, neither of them actually were sporting uh, red ties. But this both is Alan them, Kelly and Aon Both of them were brandishing red flags. There's no doubt about that. They were trying to relocate uh, the Labour Party uh, back to its kind of roots and its kind of more working class roots, uh, trying to kind of re-emphasise... Uh, the core values of the Labour Party, which both said it had lost in recent years. 
I mean, the party has suffered two really bad elections. It has only six TDs and was very lucky to survive with six TDs. At one stage, uh, up between Saturday and Sunday, it looked like it might end up with only four. Uh, so it has six TDs. Um, it had 37 uh, as recently as 2011. So the party is perilously close uh, to being on the precipice in terms of its own survival into the, the future. So it certainly needs a... a um, uh, an injection of energy, authority and uh, a, a redirection or, or someone who can find a direction uh, for the party. But things have changed. We're living in a far more complicated political landscape. There are far more political parties out there and they're not micro parties anymore. Some of them are gaining uh, substantially. Uh, if the um, if, if the Labour Party looks to its left, it'll see the Social Democrats, it'll see People Before Profit Solidarity, which has survived and is almost as strong as them. Uh, and we'll also see the Green Party, which also occupies the space to the left. So it's competing in that space. And the difficulty that the party has at the moment is that it, it's finding it very hard to, to define its message, to tell people what it stands for. So the two stump speeches on Monday from Alan Kelly and from Aona Reardon were all about trying to relocate where the Labour Party should be going into the future. So they were saying that the party should stand uh, for the working class, uh, should stand up for the public service, uh, should stand on issues like equality, housing, health, all of those things. And the other thing they were emphasising was the action part of it, that the party should be a campaigning party, that the party should be a front foot party. Um, both of them, interestingly, said that. So what's it, the difference between the two of them? I think the difference will be in, in terms of, they're both very different personalities. Um, I think uh, Aon Reardon provides more kind of a cerebral, uh, reflective uh, kind of politician, uh, whereas Alan Kelly is all action. Alan Kelly is a person who goes out and, and gets things done. And um, I think his track record over the past four or five years uh, is illustrative of that. And I think that's the reason why he is the early favourite in the race and is probably, um, you know, has more support at this stage uh, of the proceedings. But it's a long process. Uh, it takes uh, a month. It won't be decided until the 2nd or 3rd of April. Uh, there are three other hustings to go. It's likely that both candidates will speak to every single member of the Labour Party by telephone, at least, and meet them at the hostings. Uh, and uh, so uh, Aon O'Reardon's team is confident that he can bridge that gap between them. But I, I, I think Kelly is, is probably the likely... But you're characterising that very much, it seems to me, as a, as a personality-based uh, contest. Are there not fundamental questions of policy fake. I mean, we know that social democratic parties, most of them used to be a lot bigger than Ireland's social democratic party, which used to be the Labour Party. Um, they're, they're all in terrible trouble right right across Western Europe and there's a question of what their place is in the in the new political landscape. There was a there was a, a, an opinion piece on Monday, I think, in the Irish Times by um, Endo Darty, um, who's a former member of the Labour Party, and he was talking about some of the the ways in which the party uh, might have lost its way over the last few years. And one, he suggested, was that it set too much store by the the social progressive agenda, the two, the success of the two referendums, which the Labour Party had a significant role in, particularly uh, particularly the first one. But that that brought no parsnips, to use that phrase, when it came to actual general elections and maybe it needed to get back to some of the things Harry was talking about, trade unions, workers' rights, public service, etc. Yeah, he, I think he, the kicker of that piece was saying that they may re, rebrand as the Liberal Party or, or words to that effect. And I think the difference perhaps between the two candidates for leader at the moment is that one would be associated more with that Liberal tradition mm. in the party. So That's Aon O'Reardon would be associated with that, you know, social change, like the vast majority of issues 
on a national level he has championed could be seen as classic liberal issues whereas he was in a serious constituency worker in Dublin Bay North because he had to be in the last few years to regain his uh, doll seat there and I think the undertones of the campaign particularly from the Kelly side are that yes that O'Riordan would be a continuation of that liberal tradition as you say that has buttered no parsnips and he is back to the more earthy rural uh, Labour Party tradition of reconnecting with uh, working class people lower middle class people but O'Riordan seems to have uh, the backing of some people in the unions. I think that they have come out and, and supported him. Jed Nash, who's his close friend in the party at the Loud TD, is, is close to the unions. But you wonder, you know, you look at the trade union movement now and you wonder if they're friends at court at Sinn Féin. Like, is there a realignment of the trade union movement away from... You know, they're old allies of the Labour Party. There is a bit of realpolitik that kicks in here. The Labour Party do have six do have six TDs only. They have ruled themselves out of government uh, for the next period. So if you're in the trade union movement, you're going to have to look elsewhere. So you wonder how successful will the Labour Party be on that. And I think, you know, just I was not the hostings, but I read accounts of it. But looking at the, the social media activities of the two candidates was quite telling that, you know, they were tweeting all these images of great to be here at such and such a house with such and such a person or meeting. And it was a very old, old. Yeah, party. and I've noticed that for several years now when you see pictures coming out of Labour Party meetings, you know, it is a, it is a sea of grey heads, you know, um, and it's a little bit like the Catholic Church, actually, you know, and I think Iona Reardon made this point that I mean, their, their support among under 30s was extraordinarily low, 2%. Yeah, and that's the same with Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil. If you go to any of their conventions, it's almost like you know, the audience of Live at Three. I mean, it's certainly... But, I mean, it's always been that those were the most eager members tend to come from 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 the from, from the, 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 the senior section yeah, of although you wouldn't the Yeah, you wouldn't see that at a Sinn Féin meeting, for example. You'd see, you'd see a bit of it. You'll see more of it um, as time goes on, sure. uh, but not, not, not at present. I mean, I think it's a fair point. I think the Labour Party has lost its youth vote. Um, um, and it, 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 as you said, it was at the vanguard of, of uh, everything that was socially progressive in this country over the past 20 years. But it, it actually benefited to almost to a negligible extent from it in terms of uh, electoral gain. So it ha- it, it, that has never done it for it, for the Labour Party in terms of uh, the electorate. I think where the party needs to go is it needs to go back to its kind of working class roots. It's become too much identified as a kind of a middle class uh, liberal, uh, progressive party. Although that was always part of its identity. It was, but it was only part of its identity. And it's, it's, it's that part of the identity has almost subsumed the other part, like which is the, the blue-collar, working-class, trade union, as you were saying, and as Fiuk was saying, uh, making sure for, you know, the, the stuff that Jed Nash has been doing for the past couple of years should have perhaps have been emphasised more equal mm-hmm. pay and uh, making sure that people had a living wage, uh, minimum wage, all of those things. Like we're going, in, we're, we're going into an era maybe where the security of work uh, we've seen it in kind of, you know, Britain, elsewhere across Europe has become a major issue for a certain cohort of younger voters, security of work, security of tenure of work. So there's no reason why the Labour Party couldn't capitalise on that and and speak to, to that audience if they, if they calibrate their message cor- correctly. And, you know, insofar as the age thing is an issue, speaking to some people who would be kind of within the party saying that, that Aon O'Riordan was as best he could surrounding himself with the cool kids to say, you know, there is a bit of youth left in this party and this kind of one person on charity characterised the Kelly campaign as, you know, trying to 
make the Labour Party more or less Fianna Fáil, uh, moving away from the liberal issues to class, classic lower middle class concerns. And he said that all Kelly was offering was points porridge. Because, because that, that more rural, more trade union based element of Labour, the Brendan Corrish part mm-hmm. of Labour to go back many, many decades, wasn't necessarily signed up for the, the socially liberal agenda and in fact was quite conservative in, like, in, in like some the, elements. The so irony is like one of the people who split away from the Labour Party in recent years, Roshan Shortall, was traditionally seen as one of the more conservative members mm-hmm. of the Labour mm-hmm. Parliamentary Party, uneasy about abortion reform, for example. And it's kind of ironic that the Social Democrats, as we've spoken about before, have reaped a whirlwind out of the repeal campaign when Roshan Shortall was widely known in the Labour Party for being one of the more conservative members. And the point that Fiuk was making about um, uh, the the about work and about the, the changing nature uh, of work, and that was a huge concern for voters under the age of 35 or 40 who don't have steady jobs, a huge concern. And that was one of the reasons that, in my view, that along with housing and rent and all that, that impel them to turn away from the established parties into the arms of Sinn Féin. The Labour Party could have made hay in relation to that, but for some reason failed to do so during the election campaign. Maybe they were seen as almost a semi-detached establishment party as opposed to a party that was an agent for change. Wasn't one of the reasons for that that I know Eona Reardon was a, was a junior minister in the government up to 2016 and in fact Alan Kelly was a senior minister mm. for, for some of that period but that they still haven't managed it's a little bit like the British Labour Party and, and the Iraq uh, the Iraq war yep. they haven't managed to put that behind them finally that, that experience of government. No it's kind of like the tail of the comet and it hasn't really kind of burnt itself out as yet. It's going to take a while for it to burn itself out. The only thing that I thought was interesting, and it's a kind of tangential point, was that both of them said it was they thought it was a mistake uh, for the Labour Party to exclude itself completely yes. from discussions in relation to government formation. Now, both of them said they didn't want the Labour Party to go into government, but they said that by excluding themselves, they're, not, they're making themselves not relevant at the moment and they're also leaving themselves out of the loop. So both of them kind of left open the possibility because their their contest will be decided on the in the first days of April, mm-hmm. and I presume the government formation talks will still be going on at that time. Uh, that the new leader might decide uh, that Labour will enter the fray in some guise uh, towards the end of those discussions. Now, if they were to offer something that was tangible, it wouldn't be as a coalition partner. It would be some kind of agreement uh, to give qualified support yeah. from outside the. Brendan Howland said that. Uh, when he stepped down as leader, but I think it was lost in the noise around the change of leadership. He did say he kind of raised the prospect of some degree of confidence supply from the outside. And I think what Harry's right, it may not, it may not lead to actually participating in the government, but the, the, the momentum or the desire from people who are forming government is now that they want a government that can last. Mm. So if the Labour Party are willing to prop it up uh, from the outside with another leg to the stool, on certain policy issues, it'll be another way of but buttressing from a, that government. From a self-interested point of view, they would need to do that alongside some of the other parties of the left and centre-left you've talked about. The Greens and or the Sock Dems would well, the need Sock to Dems, be as part of that. And the Sock Dems aren't going to go near a government that has a Fianna Fáil, Fine Gael element to it. They've made that clear. Speaking to people in Fianna Fáil who, having, who have experience of dealing with the three centre-left parties, if you like, the Labour Party, the Green Party and the Social Democrats, on council levels, they detected a desire amongst them that they, when they jump, they like to jump together. Mm-hmm. So if one of them jumps, it would be breaking the pattern if the Social Democrats stay out. Maybe the Labour Party could be the bridge between the Greens and the Social Democrats by being half in and half out. Um, so how they play that will be interesting. But I think it's it's extracting relevance. Like if they are swamped on the opposition benches by Sinn Féin on the left and the Social Democrats who are equal standing to them, 
what will they have that will be a kind of unique USP? Well, maybe they can say, well, we're influencing government policy from the outside. We're getting things done. Where are we with government formation right now? Um, we are where we have been for the last few weeks. Not much happening. We are where we are. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> where we have been, Actually, where we will be. Uh, we're all a bit like uh, Harry yesterday, standing out in the cold, watching something going on, but maybe not, yeah, not sure like what to, it is. Well, for example, Fat today, today uh, Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael are going to meet for a policy exchange. Uh, which Fianna Fáil are talking up and uh, Fine Gael are talking down. I thought it was interesting yesterday uh, that Taoiseach said in recent days, I think it was one of his Facebook or, or Instagram videos, which kind of bypassed most people, that he had written to Mary Lou MacDonald as well, offering her a meeting, stressed that it wasn't about government formation, that he wanted to go into opposition. He wasn't going into government with Sinn Féin, but he wanted to meet and discuss issues. That meeting looks like will now happen. Um, so maybe is he trying to relegate the import of the Fianna Fáil meeting by actually bringing a Sinn Féin meeting onto the pitch as well? By saying, well, actually, you know, I'm meeting you guys, but I'm meeting her as well, and I have no desire to go to government with her. But none of us gets us anywhere in particular, does it? No. Um, the kind of view is that, my own view is that we would we will be doing well to have a government by the Maybank holiday weekend. I think we should get to the end of April will be a clarifying point about whether we actually will have a government or not. If we don't have definitive moves towards government formation by that stage, you will see uh, a lot of internal noise within Fianna Fáil about the direction of the party, the leadership of the party. That will start to bubble under. Um, As in rebellious mutterings against rebellious Michal Martin. Rebellious mutterings against Michal Martin, the kind of suppression of the criti- criticism of the general election campaign that has been a characteristic of the election aftermath in that party so far. So I think we would really need to be, so let's say the Patrick's Day festivities are in a week or two. You'll probably have kind of these relatively inclusive meetings between here and there, maybe a bit more of an intense bout of negotiation between Patrick's Day and Easter Easter break, and then come back after Easter break and really get at it. But I think the Greens are going to come under pressure in particular in the next week or two to decide what way are they falling it's not just Fianna Fáil who are expressing frustration with the length of this process. People in Sinn Féin are saying the Greens need to decide if they're going to go for the centre-left coalition or not because this cannot drag on forever. They, just the three things that strike me are the three things that struck me at, at the um, uh, right at the outset and will continue to be big issues in my, in my view. The first thing is that, that somebody in Fianna Fáil uh, will look at Sinn Féin like the apple in the Garden of Eden and say we need to take a bite of that at some stage. Uh, but to do that, I mean, it will certainly need a change of leader. So that will be a huge decision for Fianna Fáil. And it might only come at the end of May when it looks like no other option is available other than a general election. It might even take a general election yeah. uh, for, for that to happen. Because even the practicalities of changing a leader and the timescale around that would be very, very Absolutely. tricky. And Fianna Fáil has no tradition of changing its leaders. Of course, there was the heaves against Hahi in the early 1980s. Uh, but Fianna Fáil of all parties is very reluctant to uh, they give great fealty to its leader uh, even though there are, there's lots of internal mutterings at the moment What Harry says there are, there are a lot of internal mutterings in Fianna Fáil at the moment that haven't risen to surface but one way people are saying of basically you know you'd say to someone you know you, well, you can't do that until you change leader and one kind of you know this is all loose conversation it hasn't focused mm-hmm. into anything concrete yet but one way of dealing with that issue according to some in Fianna Fáil is that Michal Martin brings a proposal for coalition to Fine Gael to a special Ordesh. People actively canvass against it, turn the grassroots against the proposal. If the grassroots reject that coalition, then that would spell the end of his leadership and that would allow you to go to the next process without the ugliness necessarily of a direct heave. But 
that type of conversation and then it's kind of curious disposition that Fine Gael are in. They do gen- genuinely want to go into opposition. They're trying to find a way and Leo Varadkar also had a very poor election but he's almost like the emperor in like, you know, the Coliseum. He can look down at Michal Martin, thumbs up, he goes into government, Michal Martin survives, thumbs up, thumbs down, he doesn't go into government, Michal Martin is finished. So you just wonder, is there an element of Fine Gael playing for time in this whole process, anticipating that that internal disquiet and Fianna Fáil will bubble to the surface and could eventually bring about what they want, which is a route to opposition for them. With the Sinn Féin Fianna Fáil government? Yes. Hmm, you're making it all sound much more exciting than I thought it's it was at the exciting. outside. <laughs> Roman emperors and thumbs down <laughs> and, 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 and all here. that kind of stuff. I mean, one of the things is partly because there doesn't seem to be a lot going on that the, the, this story has been pushed off the front page and even off the second page and the third page by the coronavirus story. And I just wonder, um, without speculating for the sake of it, whether that's likely to play any part in the the political landscape as it as it develops over the next month or so. The, well, it, it, of course it is. I mean, it, in every imaginable aspect, it's going to impinge on our lives. It's going to affect our economy. It's going to affect our tourism. Um, already, you know, you're going, it's going to affect supply of of foodstuffs, supply of medical equipment. I mean, already you can't get hand sanitizer in any pharmacy in the country. You go into Aldi or Tesco at the weekend and you'll find that they've run out of rice and run out of pasta. And then if you go and look at, at, at other countries like Japan, they've run out of toilet paper in Japan because people have been hoarding toilet paper. So, you know, you're, you're, you're looking at a, 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 a uh, you're looking at a potential shortages and potential hardships just in terms of the economy. And that, of course, is going to be a very telling factor in government formation and it will be become the, the, the first priority of whatever government is formed, when a government is formed. And it might force uh, or coerce politicians uh, to come together uh, to arrive at some kind of resolutions in relation to government uh, at an earlier stage than they might, you know, it might hurry the plough as it were. Does it matter we have a caretaker government on the on the edge of what could be a very significant crisis? Um I think it does because I think the, the response from the government and from all the authorities has to be decisive and there has been criticism of the way the authorities have responded to it and I mean we can't use the Italians as an example because I think the Italians report to it has been disastrous and if you look at the number of incidents in this course of 10 days it's gone from 200 to 2,000 and they have a very high proportion of deaths as well so um, but in other countries they, they in Europe they, they've applied much more strict regimes in terms of making sure that the, the virus is contained. And uh, over here, they, uh, they we're in a containment phase still. But uh, I think there have been some uh, questions asked about, about some of the decisions that were taken. Why were people not coming back from affected areas, not told to go perhaps into self-isolation uh, for, for two weeks, uh, rather than live their daily lives and only report to uh, a GP when symptoms uh, emerged? Uh, that's different than the kind of regime that was followed in other countries. And sometimes when you have a caretaker government, it's not as active or it's not as intensively engaged uh, with, the, with the issue initially uh, as, as, as a, a full-time and permanent government. I mean, I think the government has, has, has woken up to it and has acted very decisively in the past few days. But I think it needs to keep its eye on the ball. And when you have people who are just about to go out of office, even in terms of public perception, you know, they, they, you, you need somebody who's engaged and you know who's going to be engaged into the you future are, as opposed to just now. You also have a government that is acutely conscious it doesn't have the confidence of the doll. Mm. And what happens at moments like this is you see suddenly the, the acting Taoiseach of the day consulting the main party leaders because he knows that he doesn't have the confidence of the doll. So it makes it a much more kind of wider 
process at times when there is an issue like this. And therefore decision making is slower. It's slowed down. That, that can happen. I'm not saying it will happen, but it, it previously that has been the case that the leader of the say the Taoiseach, the acting Taoiseach feels the need to consult his colleagues across the house because he doesn't know he command, he knows or she maybe knows they don't command the support of the house. We should leave that there. Harry, thanks for joining us. We're going to let you go. Fiek is going to stick with us because we are going to discuss the Shannon election after this. You're listening to the Irish Times. Now, Fiek is still with us, but we're joined also by our parliamentary correspondent, Marie O'Halloran. Marie, thanks very much for coming in. Thank you. Marie, I know this is a subject close to your heart, but forgive me if I look on the particular contest for the election to the Shannon with a somewhat jaundiced eye. Would I be right to be a bit cynical about this process? Well, this is such a pure process, the Shannon election. Actually, people are only ever interested in it when the Shannon election comes on and they talk about Shannon reform and then it just fades away as soon as the election is over. Everyone's in place, government goes off and that's it. It's all forgotten about. So an awful lot of people are very cynical about a very complex system. And we're going to go into some of the details. I should say our, our producer Declan sent me a clip of uh, a podcast from four years ago where we covered some of these things and I was getting all hot under the collar about how, how undemocratic and everything it was. Did you call it a rotten borough? Uh, I think I did call it a rotten borough and, and it still is. Well, certainly, I certainly say, think that the university seats are, are, are rotten boroughs. We might come to that later. But just the basics, first of all. Shannon Aaron, uh, there are 60 seats in the, in the Senate. 11 of them are in the gift of whoever ends up becoming Taoiseach can, can nominate 11 members of the Senate. That's correct. And whoever is in coalition uh, with the leading party, they also usually get a say in the number of seats. Um, it's proportional, I think, that they would divide them out. Usually in, they're intended to be people who have a particular expertise. They always like to have someone from the north. But of late in more recent elections, it's always been about people who've lost their seats. It becomes much more political about keeping the numbers up and In theory, the Taoiseach's um, nominees were intended to ensure that the government would keep a majority in the Shannad, but they had a minority government the last time and weren't always able to do that. They had to rely on the votes of independents who, once they become Taoiseach's nominees, are actually... They can do whatever they 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 want to do. And indeed, they they, they acted as as troublemakers on certain parts of the There were a few Fianna Fáil... nominees in the Taoiseach's 11 the last time because of the conference supply deal as far as I remember they weren't strictly party political but I think Joan Freeman and a few kind of those civic society sh- senators were put forward by Micheál Martin isn't that right? I'm not sure actually to be honest Fiat, but I think that some of them certainly the Taoiseach's nominees included uh, Paddy Coffey and Ray Butler both of whom had contested the Dáil and the Shannon elections and didn't get elected and they became nominees and there were a few eyebrows raised about that James Riley uh, lost in the Dáil and, but he was nominated. He didn't do a Shannon election. You had Colette Kelleher, who uh, was a representative. Um, she had campaigned a lot and had introduced legislation on uh, for travellers. Yeah, so that is actually, I mean, that's quite a mix, isn't it? As Fiac says, you know, there there may have been political connections with some of those people, but they're also quasi-independent as well. They're not fully made up, paid up members of necessarily of, of, of political parties. No, and, and I think that's the risk the Taoiseach and the government of the day takes is that when they appoint someone who isn't with political party and represents a particular sector, whether it's a vocational or a business interest or a campaign group, that then they can go on and be uh, independent in the voting and vote against the government as has happened on occasions. So it is a risk. So there is a comfort, a necessity sometimes to... The uh, the party senators always fulminate against the the (laughs) ingratitude of these people who've been given teachers nominees and then cause all sorts of trouble in the Shannon. Yeah, and as you you kind of guess from what Fiat's saying there is that this is the ultimate 
inside baseball election. Uh, if you look at the, the bulk of the seats, the 43 seats, uh, which are elected by uh, an electorate composed of, of who, Marie? Well, the electorate is the incoming doll, which is 160 seats, the outgoing Shannon, which is 60 seats and over 900 councillors, just under 1,000. So it's a total electorate of just under 1,200. And they decide 43 seats uh, on five panels. So they get a vote on each panel. And if you have a TD, senator or councillor who also has a degree from NUI University or Trinity or both, they will have six votes or seven votes. So the panels, I think a lot of people find this confusing. What the hell are the panels and what are they supposed to be? Well, they have five vocational panels and they're supposed to represent various sectors of Irish society. So you have the agricultural uh, panel, which would have everything from grain merchant, Irish grain um, merchant society. You have the uh, IFA is represented. You have represented, you have a whole load of agricultural organisations. Anyone you can think of uh, are probably represented on that panel. The same cultural and education, you would have education uh, bodies, cultural organisations. On the Labour panel, which is really interesting, is in, in total there are 110 nominating bodies. And anybody, any representative organisation can apply under particular criteria of the 1947 Act to be a nominating body. Mm. Not all of them use that right. Because we don't have 110 nominees from, uh, from all these bodies, do we? Well, no, no, no. Some of them don't, but a majority of them do. But the, one of the interesting ones is the Labour panel. And the Labour panel has only two nominating bodies. And they are ICTU and then there is the ICPSA which is basically an association made up of member organisations that include the Defence Force representative bodies, uh, RACO, uh, PD Fora, the Guards, uh, the GRA, the Inspectors, Guards and Inspectors the Association, whole, the whole, everyone's. The whole vocational panel, I think, is a throwback to vocationalism, which was, you know, very fashionable in the 1930s. And well, if you should say that, I did, I, I did do my Wikipedia research last night and apparently there was a papal encyclical yeah. in 1931 which favoured this kind of corporatist approach as a bulwark against socialism and communism. Seems to have worked in that, if nothing else. Um, well, it certainly worked as a bulwark for party and uh, political systems and it is basically, it mostly comes down to party um, political parties getting their people on. So those organisations which you mentioned, as for example, in the cultural area, can be people like Conor Nagelga, the Irish Georgian Society. Some of those may nominate them, but they may nominate uh, people for election, but they can also be nominated by another process as well. Yes, there's the party nomination process. So you have the party nomination process whereby if you want to uh, run for the Shannon on a party nomination, you must get the signature of four senators and or four TDs and so that means the parties to the, that extent can control who's nominated. And they're called the, it, that's the inside. Slightly it more coveted confident. way of being nominated. Yeah. By, like that seems slightly easier that you don't have to ground with the begging bowl to nominating bodies. So if you're an aspirant senator, I think getting an inside nomination is seen as slightly better because yeah, you, well, you haven't you, have to You have do. a higher status, you have party approval, the councillors, the senators, yes. the TDs, they all know this is, the this is who we're supposed to vote for. And then... You have the outside nominations whereby if you get from nominating body, uh, you can do, anybody could apply to a nominating body. You or I or Fiuk, anyone of us could apply to a nominating body. And, and do say, people do that? And they do. Lots of people do apply to nominating bodies and sometimes they get nominated and then uh, they can run. But you see, 
it's the electorate will decide. Yeah, so. and it's a highly, highly, highly political electorate by definition. It's yeah. senators, TDs and councillors. Yeah. So presumably then you arrive at a point when it comes to nominations that there are people who are really in the running. And a lot of those people are uh, have the backing of the political parties because the political parties can then call upon their councillors and their TDs and their senators to vote for them. Does that have to be very strategic in order to maximise the number of seats y- you win? Yes, it does. It has to be completely strategic. Last time around, uh, Fianna Fáil, I think, lost two seats that they should have gained in the Shannon election because they had too many candidates. And it's kind of looking like they may have too many candidates now. Um, because a number of them now some of them would have been they would have got party approval to get outside nominations because they strategize to have inside and outside it's a very complex it's almost like you need to be an actuary to work out the numbers on it whereby if they have outside and inside nominations and they can still work it uh, in a way that they will get as many people as possible elected and we might come to the count in a second that yeah. because that does play into that but, but their councillors have to play ball with them. There's also a, a tradition of smaller parties who don't have the heft at local authority level that the bigger parties would have of engaging in a you scratch my back, I'll scratch your back type of system. So you would have seen DL, I think, and the PDs yes. historically kind of say, well, you vote for our candidate and down ticket, vote for our guy. Not known for their, Not known for for their, their policy but frameworks. But it's basically it's the ultimate much. kind of, you know, insiderish transactions. Yeah. And you would have seen like in previous uh, Shannon elections when they were less not as strong as they are now, Sinn Féin and the Greens, helping each other out to kind of help get, you know, they might get two senators or one. Now, the panels themselves, they're essentially, I suppose people can think of them like constituencies. But the difference is it's the same electorate in in every constituency. But they have different numbers of seats, the different panels. So as you said earlier, if I'm a county councillor, I have a vote in each one of these panels. And I will, uh, but but in some panels there's five seats, five or six seats, and some in some panels there's more. yeah. Well, it's like really complicated. It is. It is, it is, <laughs> it is well, it's even more complicated because you've in agriculture you've like I've just looked up the numbers there this morning. In agriculture, you've eleven seats. There are twenty six candidates. Uh, culture and education, there are five seats and 20 candidates. And I think one of the more complex ones now is in the industrial and commercial panel, you've nine seats, but there are 35 candidates. So you can imagine the war there's going to be over and that. And this is a PR system? Completely. It's a, that's the one similarity with the doll, mm-hmm. I think. So Possibly a, the only similarity. I can't think of anything else. So it's a single transferable vote, except in this case, and you'll have to explain this to me, it's a single transferable vote multiplied by a thousand. This is yeah. the most convoluted element of the Shannon election. Uh, <laughs> well, no, it's not. It's, it's actually, it's the second most convoluted. <laughs> okay, well, we'll get to the most convoluted one in a minute. Well, the second most convoluted element of the Shannon election in the counting is that it comes down to a fraction of votes. So everybody has their first vote. So that's 1,200 people vote five times on five panels. And they do, they tend to do one panel at a time because it yeah. is so complex. And, and because so there's different numbers of seats, there's different quotas in each one. Yes. Yeah, but they're all around, you know, they, they like they all work out at, you know, depending on which panel you're on, you normally need to get 45 first preferences. Okay. So you have cases where one senator was elected, I can't remember the name, on the lowest, he claimed 17 votes but you had a case where Fine Gael senator the last time round, uh, Paul Coughlin, had 24 first preferences and was going home. And Lazarus, like, he came back and he won okay. the seat. So it gets very tricky. But on the first preference, it's they all put out their votes and they can count those. And then the second preference... I'm sorry, why are they multiplied by a thousand? They're multiplied by a thousand because the second when you get to the second preference, you start to get into fractions because... Each politicians vote, can't do fractions. It was exactly. Well, not many of us can, in fairness. You should should, should witness the Shannon election in process. It is just unbelievably complex. 
but it's but it it is arcane and it's you know they've all described it as bonkers and it takes place in the Oireachtas dining room, the private dining room in, in the Oireachtas, yeah. and it's just it's just so complicated and it's the ultimate anorak yeah. fest. So just to, and I can tell you guys love this, but I just 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 to kind of nail down a couple of things here. One of the things is obviously this can cause stresses at the party level when they figure out how many people to nominate and who to nominate. We've seen this this time around already with Fine Gael and the Green Party, for example, and who they chose to nominate. Yes, Fine Gael, there was a massive controversy over the fact that uh, the former Dublin Bay South uh, high-profile TD, uh, Kate O'Connell, did not make the nominations. And that caused consternation. And, and she had been expected and would have been expected, I think, to, to, to be one of the um, senators on the list because she was a very effective upfront politician. Um, also, now, there were party rumblings over that and people had talked about, uh, well, people were saying Catherine Byrne had been snubbed, Minister of State Catherine Byrne, who lost her seat in Dublin South Central, but she decided to retire from politics. And it's generally seen as a, a path back to the doll. So if you're someone who's narrowly lost a seat or is a prospect of winning a doll seat back, they will make your passage into the Shannon a lot easier. And that's why the controversy around Kate O'Connell was slightly more acute because... You know, Dublin Bay South is a Fine Gael heartland. You know, you'd think they would have a road back to a seat there. And the fact that the party have now decided that if there is another doll seat there, it isn't going to be Kate O'Connell. It's also seen as a case of revenge being a dish best yes, served cold, no, isn't and, it, and after well, the well, you know, in the past? Did, did call, like, you know, went against party leadership on a number of issues. So I think that was the, the prism through which that was seen. Okay. Back to the count. Um, we're on tenterhooks now. We've multiplied everybody by a thousand. The... Um, we're, we're in the second count, the third count. People are being eliminated. People are familiar with that process from the general election. But it's not quite as simple as that, just in case you thought this wasn't complicated enough. Because in each panel, there is a requirement for how many nominees for the two different types of and nominees this, you talk and about. this is the most, incompl- most complicated part. And I think the most savage part for a lot of candidates. So they may make the quota, but because on each panel, uh, there has to be a certain number of inside candidates chosen and a certain number of outside candidates chosen. So you might be, you might hit the quota, but we'll say, for example, on the culture and education panel, there are five seats. So there must be a minimum of two senators from the inside panel, which is the panel chosen by the party, um, the four signatures from the party nominees. And then on the outside, you must have two from the outside. So if you have three from the inside at the top of the poll or four... And then you Eyes get an outside. Yes, you the top the fourth person loses out because you must have at least two from the outside. So that's where it gets impossible. And they monitor okay. that as they go along. And what happens is they have to count all the votes right to the very end. So they make sure all the votes go and then they say, You're gone, you're in, you're out. So and it's a pretty savage process and obviously it's a highly politicised electorate, Vic, which means that they probably all lie to each other about who they're going to vote <laughs> yeah. for anyway. It's, you know, <laughs> that's exactly true. Like the amount of Shannon candidates who wouldn't go, I'm doing really well, you know, I've been promised so many number one votes and the box is open and they're horrified when they find out that county councillors shock horror and you know, make f- f- false promises. And the them. amazing thing is they can always tell you nearly, they know who said they'd vote for them and didn't. Yeah, they that, can always track yeah, back Yeah, they vote. can track always. it back. It is quite a gruelling process as well. So the people who are currently canvassing for Shannon votes are on the road, non-stop meeting county councillors all over the country. You get in your car and you drive for weeks and weeks on end. You and drove a, you drive have up to, a it, yeah, to meet councillors it's, 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 it's kind of like, you know, 
it is personally grueling. these days. Touch the elbow these days, or like you know, you meet them. Like I heard of one instance where like it's almost like counselor speed dating in a garden centre off the motorway. The counselors from a party are there on time having their cheesecake, and the, the shannon candidates come in and talk to them and then hit the road again. It's that type of process. It's highly. Highly political, and the, uh, I've spoken to a couple of uh, TDs who ran th- had spent their time in the Shannon, and their advice they were given advice. One of them was, "Well, you pick your councillors, you phone everybody, you write to everybody, and then you go see whoever you have the best chance of uh, convincing." And then there was all this, they've all these little arguments over, "Well, should I make an appointment with them or should I not?" And everybody said, "You should make an appointment." And other people say, "If you..." dream of making an appointment they'll make an excuse not to be there so you have to show up so you could drive to Sligo and your preferred whoever you're trying to convince councillor um, may not be there and his other advice to candidates was when you're offered the ninth cup of tea take it mm. so okay. you have so to like you know and there's also a little personal fiefdoms around the country so let's say you might like you know you're hitting the Healy Rays you're not hitting just two TDs you're hitting the councillors they have so how many votes are there it's like a beehive of votes the same with the Lowry organisation in Tipperary so there's all these little quirks of the system around the so place So good driving skills and strong bladders are the, are, the, are, are, are the main requirements And also I think some of them did go um, go with their gifts and I've heard stories where people have categories of gift uh, you know okay. depending on how influential or important The one election promise that works in this, campa- this campaign is more pay for councillors they deserve it <laughs> I'm really not the first person to say this, but this is a terrible way of electing the upper chamber of a functioning parliamentary democracy. And we haven't even got into the fact that two universities in Ireland have the right to elect uh, the right to elect six six senators, while none of the other third level institutions, for some reason, even though there was an amendment passed to the constitution more than forty years ago allowing them to vote, nobody bothered their butt to to actually put that into legislation. Um, the you can make an argument that this sort of two tier electoral system for the forty three seats isn't quite as bad as that, and it probably isn't, but. Everybody more or less agrees this isn't great and there have been umpteen proposals to improve it and reform it. Most recently, I think, a Mar- set of Morris Manning proposals and then a, a group of, of senators led by Michael McDowell who made some proposals how you could change these things without changing the constitution because as we know, there was a referendum on getting rid of this rigmarole and, and that failed. Well, Any chance of making it work a bit better? Well, you see, like I said at the start, what happens is everybody's interested in Shannon until mm. the actual count and then it's all forgotten about. And it happens every time. I think there was a peak of interest after uh, the 2013 referendum instituted by then uh, Thisha Genda Kenny to abolish the Shannon. And I've often thought, in hindsight, that had he allowed a debate on it, had they actually thrashed it out, it may have disappeared altogether. But I think because Thisha didn't allow the debate, then everybody said there's something fishy about this and I think that's why people it said boiled, he didn't allow a, a vote. Yeah, it so boiled down to like, you know, this this overbearing government which had a huge majority at the time mm. doesn't want any scrutiny on it. Um, and Marie's right, there was no kind of teasing out of the arcane intricacies of this and how ridiculous it actually is. And I think what happened then, there was an attitude amongst people, well, you know, we asked you to abolish it, you didn't, so stuck, good luck, you're stuck with what you have now. So no matter, I wouldn't have great, you know, hope that this will be reformed in any way because the attitude seems to be we asked people to get rid of it. They didn't want it. They're stuck with it. Just brings politics into dis- into disrepute in Ireland because it's it's clearly undemocratic. It's clearly unfair. Absolutely. Like you know, if you're not a graduate of the NUI or Trinity College, you, 
Like, why, why are you a second-class citizen in, in this democratic process? For no apparent reason, and it goes back to, you know, the, the way this was drafted in the 1930s. That's what it goes back to. And the idea that this is a, which is often another canard trotted out in Shannon elections, it's a superior chamber with, you know, a higher standard of aid is complete tosh. They can barely fill the schedule at times. It's absolute rubbish. Like, you'd want to see the, the schedule of the Shannon sit at 12 o'clock, go at 2 o'clock on a Thursday, statements on this, that, and the other. It is a complete... Completely ridiculous chamber that serves no other function than for like you no know, junior B type people on the way up and people on the way down. I can't help smiling because it reminds me my uh, my retired colleague, parliamentary colleague Michael O'Regan used to say the ideal job was the one term senator, where you went in, you got the job, and you could swan in and make a speech and swan out again. In fairness to the Shannon, there are sometimes they do have some really good debates on if they pick an issue rather than legislation. And sometimes they have introduced amendments to legislation that have, you know, an important impact on bills. So so it does have a function. Finally, Marie, what are the what's the timescale on this? When do the votes take place? When does the count take place? When do we know who's in the new Senate? Okay, well, um, what we have is actually the NUI and Trinity um, postal ballots started going out um, last Friday, I think. Uh, I got mine in the post yesterday. Uh, and there's a point on that, actually, is that um, under the law, your postal ballot is sent out its registered post, um, which is more costly than standard post. But if you vote in a doll election on a postal vote, it's standard post. Well, the graduates expect the best, don't they? Yeah. Obviously, but then, but then that you is get the your niche of the niche yeah, points I've heard in this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but there you go. There's a saving of if your if your standard post is one euro and your 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 registered post is two fifty, or whatever, uh, you're saving. You know, out to out to how many people? Uh, I think well, was the point I saw somebody do a calculation 000. about how many how many um, voters there are in the different electoral areas of Dublin and it mapped very closely to the class divide in, in this society and the number of voters in Dublin, two, four and six, was a multiple of the number of voters in certain other parts of Dublin, which is an indication of how completely unjust the whole thing is. Yeah, and the point has been made that, uh, you know, if you have farmers who may not have had third-level education um, who have a... Um, qualification as a farmer in agriculture that they should be allowed to vote on an agriculture panel. But just, sorry, going back to the deadlines, timelines, sorry, you did ask. The postal ballots have started on the NUI and Trinity panels. Um, The process for the vocational panels, the postal votes start on the 16th of March. They conclude on the 30th of March at a, uh, I think it's 10am or 11am and the votes, the counting starts on the 30th of March at 11am. Okay, I'm, I think our listeners will be delighted with our introduction to the arcana of the of the Shannon election. It is uh, remarkable stuff. Thanks very much to Marie for explaining to us. I, it seems I'm a little bit clear on it now. Thanks to Fiek for his insight, baseball insights as usual. Thanks to Suzanne Brennan for producing and thanks to JJ Vernon on the desk. Remember that you can get more of our journalism at irishtimes.com slash subscribe where you can sign up for the introductory price of one euro for the first month. And you can, of course, find this podcast on all the usual platforms and at irishtimes.com slash podcasts. You can mail us at politicspodcast at irishtimes.com. But until the next time, thanks very much indeed for listening.